Hey, happy 10-year anniversary. Happy 10-year anniversary, and uh, absolutely. And uh, happy Palm Sunday, and actually some people showed up. <laughs> Man, it's great to have you. Oh my, what God has done. Well, this month and uh, Easter Sunday, next Sunday, as you know, have been a time we're just celebrating what God has done over the years. And um, these past, uh, or these five sermons comprising all of this uh, are kind of coming from the past. They are coming from the past. And God's word never gets stale, never gets dull. You can hit it a hundred times and it's still rich and it's still alive. And uh, for me, it's kind of like, uh, uh, it's a bit of a family reunion with my kids. Just in these texts. So cool. I'm, I'm working it. I'm trying. Um, next Sunday, uh, we're going to be in uh, the typical text that everybody goes to for Easter, and that is Revelation chapter 1. <laughs> and uh, we are the resurrected, glorified, magnified Jesus Christ. Um, everything changed since the cross and the resurrection. And so we're going to be going there next Sunday. Um, the Sunday after Easter, just so you're aware, um, we're going to be going into the first uh, 15 chapters of 1 Samuel. We're kind of picking up the story. Part of what I'm doing this month is bringing back some of the story of what we've covered in Scripture, in God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Samuel. It'll be, it's called Life With. It's, it's both life with and life without. There's this interesting contrast in every one of the chapters about what life with the Lord looks like, what life without the Lord looks like. And uh, we're keying in on life with uh, on that, but that's also the other part of it. And so we'll be doing that. Uh, really, Samuel, one of the first prophets, is in that, and then Saul comes in that. Um, someday then in the future, we'll pick up and grab from David and go through a, a take David on after that. Well, today, uh, here in Palm Sunday, um, we're going to go back about four years ago to when the very first Palm Sunday that we had here in this facility and uh, we're going to be uh, working that uh, sermon from that day. Uh, at the time when we first moved into the facility, we were in the book of Colossians. And the series that we were doing at that time was Jesus Christ Supreme. The reason for that series was I wanted to be able to have it to where it's so common for people, for us to ministry people as well, to get into a building and, and have all the wonders of that take place and everything. And you kind of get all caught up in it. Um, but we want to be about Christ, right? That's the central thing. Uh, that's the thing we want to be about. And so at that time, we were kind of redriving that stake in the ground as to what we were all about and keep uh, understanding this building is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a sending base for what happens out like in the video you saw. Um, so on that first Palm Sunday, we went to uh, Matthew 21. And so I'm going to ask for you to turn there as well. Matthew chapter 21, uh, Jesus' entrance in Jerusalem. Uh, his entrance into Jerusalem was actually his entrance to the cross and to the resurrection. Uh, he knew that, and I'll just say, oh my, what the Lord has done uh, as a result of all that. By the way, I realize a few of you might be to where you're looking at your sermon notes and said, hey, I remember like three Sundays ago, he said he wasn't going to put any sermon notes in, in, those, in those texts, and, and yet he did. He's a liar. Yep. Uh, just as I was getting ready this week, I was looking at it, I'm like, we're going to be going to a number of texts, and I thought, just better for you to stay with it. And so I've got the text on where we're going to go down there. I just want you to know 
I, uh, I remember my word, and I changed it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Matthew 21, let me read verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, how many? Two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. How does this guy know that? I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Don't read too quickly. You just, he, he knows what's there, where they're at. He knows what's going to be asked and he knows the answer to it. I'm telling you, this is more than just a regular dude. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, uh, coming out of Zechariah 9, uh, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and a foal of a, a beast of burden. And then the disciples went, and they did as Jesus had directed them, those two disciples. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks, and he, Jesus, sat on them. Uh, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? What's the reflection in that? Just, I'm curious at that time if the whole crowd is saying, who is this? Who, who, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So why all the fuss about Jesus? By the way, both then and I might say now, we're coming into Easter and Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And by the way, if you're available Friday evening, you want to come on over from 7 to 8 p.m., we'll be here praying, and uh, you're welcome to come on over. We'll be praying just uh, over through the crucifixion and what the Lord has done, and we'll be praying for Easter as well. I'd love to have you. Um, but why the fuss? Um, I, I might just say it this way. Because people are looking for answers. Because people are looking for answers. They were in that day, and they are today. In fact, we were created uniquely to be able to be a being on this earth that has an ability to ask questions and to seek answers. I do not know of any animal, any pet, as much as I've loved our pets over the years and all that. I do not know any of them. I mean, our dog, I remember, he used to turn his head like he was asking a question. But, but he never asked a question. It was just, they're there. And listen, you look in creation, and mankind is unique from everything else that's been created. I've never had a tree ask me a question. I've never had a lake ask a question or seek answers. But God has designed us in his image, uh, and in that uh, contains this ability to ask questions and to seek and to pursue answers. And I love that about us. It's one of the super unique things out of all of creation. Uh, that God has done with mankind. Uh, we were created with the ability to ask questions and to pursue answers. Probably, as you know, a theoretical uh, physicist Stephen Hawking recently passed away, and like you and me, he had the opportunity to be asking questions and seeking answers. Apparently, he was a brilliant man, and he devoted his life to asking questions and to seeking answers in all that. And I commend him greatly for that. 
And while his personal conclusions on his answers are very, uh, to the grand, grand design, one of the books he had, you know, to what is the grand design of things, very greatly from what I understand, he had the opportunity to ask those questions and to pursue those answers about matter and about life. And uh, by the way, I'm just going to make a comment here. I don't understand sometimes when I read about uh, believers who, when someone like that passes away, kind of almost get a joyful snideness about, well, I guess he found out now. If we understood what's really going on, where's the compassion? And where's the drive in us? I, I, I hope he came to know the Creator before he met the Creator in that. Amazing man. People are asking questions, and people are looking for answers. And the people here of Matthew 21, they're doing that. And in fact, they're asking the right question. This is no more important of a question that one could ask. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? It's interesting in the text there, we see three declarations, a question and an answer. Uh, The three declarations are in verse 9. This is, by the way, the crowd that went before him. Uh, So this is actually outside of the Jerusalem city walls, if you will. They're kind of coming in and right outside. Uh, The three statements, Hosanna to the son of David. By the way, that's a messianic declaration right there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's a spiritual divinity involvement in all of this. And the third one, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, save us, rescue us in the highest. This is kind of a salvific declaration. We could spend the whole time talking from the Old Testament about what this is. They're making declarations that they do know and they don't know at the same time coming out of scripture in it. We don't have time to, to, to weed or work those all out in that. But, but they did, that from that, they ask a whole, they ask one question. Do you see that then? It says the whole city that's inside Jerusalem, they ask the question, who is this? Who is this? Got to understand, this is during the Passover time. The city is probably 10 times its normal size on it. People are hubbub of everything going on. It's both religious and political going on in that day. And, and, and here they're asking the right question. Listen, friends, how someone answers this question, Scripture says, is the most important thing in all of life. Right here. They're absolutely asking the right question. And they, someone gives an answer, or some of them give an answer, and they say, verse 11, this is the prophet... Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's an interesting statement. It's coming from the Old Testament. They're thinking that, you know, like Samuel, you, you, you know, like, like, like the others of Jeremiah, the others of the Old Testament, you know, he's kind of one more of them because remember from the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has been silent for 400 years. And all of a sudden, this one is coming and they're like, he's the next prophet. He, he's the prophet that's going on. And I would say this, close, but not close. I mean, they're kind of in somewhat of a territory that they understand that this guy's different from all the other guys. This guy's not normal, but they're also very far away from what's going on. We were created with the ability to ask questions and pursue answers, and the big question on the table is, who is this Jesus? By the way, if somehow you're uncomfortable with us asking that question, like we're maybe stepping into territory that we shouldn't be asking, maybe thinking that that's kind of an uncomfortable question to ask or we might offend the Lord by asking that question. Uh, Here's what I want first to do. I want us to take a look at two passages to see that the question is fine and dandy. And in fact, Jesus invites it. So with that, turn to Matthew 16. Uh, Two answers to this question, uh, one now coming from Peter and one from John the baptizer. Matthew 16. 
The activities of Matthew 16 occur before Matthew 21. I'm assuming you would understand that in this. He's with his disciples. Let me pick up verse 13, chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. So this is, this is like a, a, a 1 to 12 kind of a question going on. Uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? By the way, the Son of Man is an Old Testament term. That's not like born of man. That's who, who is the representative of man, if you will. Uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, the disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Yeah, do you see how then later in 21, when they say, yeah, he, he, there's the prophet, uh, Jesus. Uh, verse 14, uh, what they answered. And then verse 15, Jesus essentially turns to them and kind of narrows the question, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Hey, listen, friends, Jesus knew exactly what everybody was understanding, who he was, and what they were thinking about him. He didn't need clarity on it. He, he, he understood that. But here, now, all of a sudden, he's narrowed in. The whole question is being put on the table because, really, he wants to have a conversation with his guys. And now he turns to them, and he's asking them, so, guys, who do you say that I am? By the way, Jesus is not offended with the question. He invites it. He puts it out on the table. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied as he would normally reply before anyone else replies. But he gets at this one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, son of, it's not born of, it's equivalent of, it's just like son of man, son of God. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Messiah, the Old Testament, there's a whole, in all of that that's going on. Uh, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus asks the question, he invites the discussion, and he's not offended by it. You are the Christ, you, you, you are the Son of the living God, you are the equal one of the living God. Uh, let's take that and let's go to another answer to this and then we're going to flesh this one out. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. To the right of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. It's Palm Sunday. Who is this, Jesus? Verse 19. John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John, the, the, the baptizer, uh, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Everybody's asking questions. Who are you, John? And he confessed, I did not deny, but confessed, uh, uh, I am not the Christ. Okay, I am not the Messiah of the Old Testament that, that it uh, tells is coming. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Uh, are you the prophet? Uh, by the way, not a prophet, the prophet. There's a definite article there in that. It's referring to another. We don't have time to go into it. But uh, are you one of? And then it's like, are you this one of? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you, man? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making, way, making the way straight of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Uh, to go to verse 29. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an interesting term. Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And here John uses this term, behold the Lamb of God. Lamb. That's a bizarre statement. 
I mean, it sounds so sweet. It sounds so calm. It sounds so woolly. Kind of sounds so innocent and so storybooky and so lamby, doesn't it? The Lamb of God. What did John mean by that? Because who was walking into Jerusalem? John would say the Lamb. Let's take a look. Beginning to end at this term, the Lamb. And let's open our eyes to see who Jesus is. Behold, the Lamb. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be, as you can see in your sermon notes there, going to some passages in the Old Testament. I would call these shadows of the Lamb. Colossians 2.17 makes reference to what God has directed in the Old Testament. It says that uh, these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, think of that, a shadow. Uh, I'm standing here right now, and there's a, uh, you can't see it, but there's a bit of a shadow coming off. Shadow is, shadow is not the thing. The shadow is a reflection of the thing. It's not the thing, but, it's, but it is the thing. The thing is causing the shadow. The substance is, is what is causing the shadow when a shadow is put out. And so here in the Old Testament, we're about to see a shadow. Now, in shadows, sometimes you can see, and if it's in the right thing right now, I, I can't really up here, which is really good up here. And in that, uh, it's a type of thing where when there's a shadow, so you can even like to pick out who that person is from a shadow, but you can't pick out the details. It's not three-dimensional. It's only one-dimensional. The Old Testament is a shadow of the lamb of the one that is coming. So we're in Genesis 3. Let's start there and let's take a look. We're talking about the lamb. Let's build this all out. Oh, friends, this builds and I'm excited. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. It says, uh, then the eyes of, of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened after they sinned. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves uh, loincloths. Uh, here's really interesting. This is to, happens to you and I every day. Now, I don't sew, sew no fig leaf loincloths. Ah, we do. Because here's what happens when we sin. We try and cover it up all the time. And we try and cover it up in our own means. And it happened from the very first sin and it still happens today. And here it is and then we try and do it in our own way. So we just sow fig leaves to try and make the momentary cover. Like why did they even care, man? I mean there's no cameras, there's no thing. <laughs> okay, I won't go there. It just, it's just like why did they even care? Because they knew something had changed in it all. And so they cover Right away. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord sits uh, Satan, the serpent, and Adam and Eve down. And verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And, 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 and an offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Hold, friends. Listen, sin comes in the very first picture. Adam and Eve try and cover it up. God comes in and addresses the whole situation. And in it, right at the moment, right at the very first conversation following sin, God already has a plan all laid out. And that plan includes Satan is going to deal a, 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 a bruising blow to an offspring of the woman. But that offspring of the woman, he is going to deal Satan a lethal blow. 
And I want to tell you what, that lethal blow happened on Good Friday on the cross. And really the lethal blow was finalized on Resurrection Sunday. Satan thought he had Christ on the cross. Oh no. Doug, why is this going? Hang in here. Go towards, more towards in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21. We're in the shadows. Uh, the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Stop. I thought they already had some coverings. No, you see, they had coverings that they had made. And the coverings that they have made were not the kind of coverings that God had made. And so God steps into the picture and God makes garments for them. What what are the garments comprised of? The garments are comprised of skin. What does skin come from? Skin comes from an animal. Uh, Do you see what's happening? Friends, in Genesis chapter 3 is the gospel showing itself as a shadow. Blood is being spilt after sin comes into the picture. And animal skin is covering over, provided by the Lord. Question, might that have been a lamb? I don't know. But I think it was in light of what we're about to see. Turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. It's right after the flood. Verses 20 and 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. I'm just reading this and in this, it's been a year since after the flood, verse 14 tells us in here, and Noah takes this some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and there's this visual, personal, uh, a sacrificial price is being offered, and it's pleasing to Yahweh. I'm telling you, friends, we're just building some movement here. We're building a thread on what happens in Scripture. Some of this, it's like I step back and I go, what's going on here? I don't get it. Why is all this? This is kind of odd. This is kind of weird. But I'm telling you, keep hanging here. Let's see the rest. Turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. From the time of Abram and Sarah, Isaac has been born. God in this, sometimes I don't understand some things of the Old Testament, but God asks Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. His one and only son is the hope of, the, of God's people that God had promised to Abraham. Uh, we pick up verse 7. And Isaac said to his fathers, they're getting ready to head out, my father. And he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire in the wood. But where is the what? Why, where does that come in? You see, there's already an understanding that the sacrifice would be a lamb. Not a goat, not a cow, not a rooster, not a cat, but a lamb. Something's happening here. But where is the lamb, Isaac asked, for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering for my son. So they went, both of them, together. Look at verse 13. Abraham uh, ready to sacrifice his son, lifted his eyes up and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. What's a ram? 
A ram is a male lamb. Caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abram went and took the ram, the male lamb, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. By the way, Hebrews 11. God is maturing Abraham's faith through this. Literally, it says God is testing him. His assurance of things hoped for. He, God is building his conviction of things not seen. A greater grasp of who the creator is. And Yahweh provides a lamb. He provides a ram. He provides a male sheep in it. We see the lamb beginning to build Genesis 3 and Genesis 8 and Genesis 22. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're in the 10th plague. Moses has come into the land of Egypt. He's asked Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh's like, no. He's like, let my people, no. Let my people go. Okay, uh, and then no. And all these plagues are going on and, and God is showing himself great to Pharaoh and to his people. Uh, Exodus chapter 12. We pick up verse one. The Lord said to Moses, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, pause, a couple Sundays ago, Joshua chapter three, they step into the promised land on the tenth day of the first month. Friends, God knows everything to the details. And every man shall take a what? A lamb, according to their father's house, a, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly, the congregation of Israel, shall kill their lambs at twilight. Uh, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here is the 10th plague. God has gotten to the point. It's like, it's time. It's time. It's time for the final blow. It's time to get my people out. And so it's time to consecrate yourself. Get ready for this. And in this, there's God initiates again, this lamb, this lamb sacrifice going all the way, this thread of it going all the way back through scripture so far. And God initiates the lamb. What are you to do? There's this process of it. And then they're to take the lamb and then those are, you're to paint the blood on the sides of the door frame in your house because the house is where you go in and out of the door frame of it and you're to paint it on the sides and on the lintel on the top and by the way in here anyone could choose to do that or not do that God told them what they should do but any Israelite any Egyptian could go no thanks but the one who hears what the Lord has said and the one who in faith steps in and does what the Lord has said and receives what the Lord has said and paints the blood on the lamb of the lamb on the door frames of their houses and then hunker down at night. They don't paint it on the door frames of the houses and then they're all out bowling that night. They're, they're, they're to stay in their homes. Why are they to stay in their homes? Because when they stay in their homes, they are sitting under the blood of the lamb. 
And then as God, the angel of the Lord, begins to pass over and and bring judgment on what's going in this final blow of bringing his people out on Egypt, but it would be the same thing for any Israelite that did not paint the blood on their house. This wasn't an automatic covering of everyone. They had to apply the blood to their own household to their own doorframe. And as God is passing over and bringing judgment, and surely there would be noises of it, whether there's a sound of the angel, or I don't know, like a wind or whatever it was going on. But here, do you understand? What's, oh, I love this. Do you, here they are in their house that night with your fam uh, sitting around, and the angel of the Lord is passing over. And what are you thinking? You are thinking, this blood better do it, this job. What is saving you from what you are about to learn, what God brought in his judgment all around to anyone who did not have the blood? What was the one singular thing that saved you from that full judgment? The answer is the blood of the lamb. In faith, holding under it. Not because of anything you did, not because of who you were born, because an Egyptian could do this as well. Oh, the gospel is right here. Turn to Isaiah 53, just to the center right of your Bible. And that's not a political statement. Everything's political today. Isaiah 53, verse 2, talking about the Christ that Peter was referring to. For he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and go, whoa, that dude's beautiful. No beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned away, everyone to his own way. That's Romans 3.23. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Romans 6.23. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like what? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. His mouth, friends, these are shadows of what's taking place on Palm Sunday. And I would just say, behold the shadows of the Lamb of God. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Let's move into the New Testament. 
Mark chapter 14. It's Wednesday of the Passion Week. It's two or three days after the triumphal entry. It's two or three days after the crowds inside Jerusalem were asking the question, who is this? Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? By the way, do you see the connection to the Passover? The Passover of Exodus 12? And now it's Passover time. Christ could have gone to the cross at any point in time. But at Passover time is when he goes to the cross. And in this, can you imagine here him sacrificing, getting ready to sacrifice the Passover lamb? that has been taking place year after year, knowing that within a short momentary period of time, the lamb will be sacrificed. And the Passover lamb meal takes place, and the lamb is partaking in it. Mark 15, verse 33 And when the sixth hour, noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land. Christ is on the cross. Until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, which is what time? Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sakbachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Some ran and filled a sponge with with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. You see, they're still in, in, in this prophet's idea. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. By the way, at what time? Let me ask it again. At what time? Why, 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 do we, why is that important? Because here's how the Passover worked. The Passover would work to where all the lambs would be gathered together at the temple grounds. And the sacrifice, because of the time of the day, and you're like, yeah, but it was happy, but just hang with, at the time of the day, because there's kind of two times going on with this, and at the time of the day, when does the first lamb get sacrificed? The first lamb gets sacrificed at 3 p.m. Everyone knew that. And what happens at 3 p.m. here? The lamb gives up his life. And then what else happens at 3 p.m.? And when, uh, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. At what time? At 3 p.m. When the knife was ready to begin taking the first lamb's life. 
And the temple court is her access to God is now made available. And when the centurion standing facing him saw that in this way he breathed his life, he says, truly, this is the Son of God. That is an Old Testament declarative statement of the Messiah, the Messiah, the Lamb. And he, at that time, gives up his life as the final payment lamb. And on Palm Sunday, when he's walking in on a donkey, which in that day was like a king entering a city, when he was walking in, he was headed to the temple to be slaughtered for sin as the final and full payment sacrificial lamb. And that's usually where the story stops. But when John said, behold the lamb, it's not just a past statement, and it's not even a statement in his present. I want to finish by showing that it is also a future reality in understanding the lamb. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5. Loved ones, far too often we see our Bibles as the snippets of little gold nuggets. And the fact of the matter is, the Bible is a narrative of the whole of the beginning to the end. In Revelation chapter 5, Christ has died, he's resurrected. John chapter 4 is before the throne of God. In chapter 5, he's telling Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Because John knew that if no one was able to open the scroll, none of the things that are about to happen would come. And he's like, I want all this to come. And in verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the what? Wait, you just changed animals on me. Behold the lion. Yeah, but it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The lion is another term that's used regarding the Messiah. Roaring lion with authority. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of the Judah of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw what? A lamb. I thought it was a lion. It is. Because the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion. Standing as though it had been slain. Do you see that? And seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll. The lamb, who is the lion, went and took the scroll from the right hand of the father who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the 
lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, uh, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, lamb, uh, to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood ransomed. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. That's Exodus 19. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, uh, elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads. The choir is getting bigger, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the be the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Everybody falling down in the heavens to this lamb who is the lion. And when John says, behold the lamb. That statement goes all the way back to Genesis 3. All the way into the eternal state. Oh, we're not in the eternal state yet. You're correct. Look at Revel, uh, Revelation 7. Verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands and crying out with, with a loud voice, salvation belongs our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne again and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to you, to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed them, addressed me saying, who is this clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Revelation 21. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 2, chapter 22. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb.
will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be tatted on their foreheads. That's in the Greek. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and there they will reign forever and ever. Friends, so many movies make attempts to kind of try and understand what's happening on Palm Sunday. And I appreciate their attempts. But it falls so short of actually the whole of what's really going on in the course of redemptive history in this moment on Palm Sunday. John was right. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is one of the most pinnacle times in all of redemptive history. He is entering not to sit on the throne as king of the earth. He's entering to go to the cross as the final, full, sacrificial lamb. Everything else before that was a shadow to it. And the people are asking the question, who is this? And they reply, that is the prophet of God. It just falls so short. Not a moral man. Not a props to you, dude. Listen, how do we respond? Well, I think you could respond like the crowd in respectful admiration. But it's so wimpy when you see the whole admiration. You could reply with verbal appreciation. Thank you, Jesus, hippie sandal dude, for all you've done. You're the man, props to you. So small, so lame. It's not seeing the whole, the beginning to the end. Or it could be behold the lamb in full outright adoration. And seeing from the beginning to the end and the, in the middle, behold the lamb. Behold the Genesis to Revelation lamb. The one who is a sacrifice, who is made to cover. To provide total forgiveness. To reunite all who would call upon him, receive his sacrificial work. To bring you back into perfect relationship with him. You cannot cover yourself. And if you think you can, you can't. Provision has been made. And it is far better than any wimpy fig leaf stitchery. God has come in the flesh. And he has provided full payment doing for you and I what we could not do for ourselves as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And if somehow you think you can earn God's favor, oh, I plead with you, reconsider in light of what Scripture says. 
You can't. You must be so exhausted from trying to earn God's favor. It's so exhausting. We've all tried it, right? Just stop it. It's way too exhausting. And it doesn't do it. Because God's gift is by grace through faith. Somehow you think that through some ceremonial act of whatever, some spiritual moment provides you that, you're not understanding what Scripture says. God has provided covering available for you. And do you know that you know that you know that you have that covering? Scripture says, as many as received him, the lamb, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, friends, this is not something to dabble with or play with. If he is indeed the lamb, and if he is indeed paid the full price, and if, as Ephesians 2 says, it is available and free, and if you do not have a time where you have received that gift of salvation, today is your day. It's not knowing about the lamb. It's receiving the work of the lamb and your life changed. That would be an appropriate response. We're gonna take communion. Here's what, uh, here's what I'd like to have happen. If you don't know that you know that you know, that the work of the Lamb has done a work in you, then this is a time for you to come before the Lord and I would just call out to you and say, it's time to receive the work of Christ now. God, maybe before I received a genie in a box. God, before I did some religious act of whatever, thinking that would do it. But that's not what it is. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So one, this would be the perfect time for you, just right now before the Lord, to come and receive Christ as your Savior, confess that you're a sinner, receive the work of Christ, of the Lamb that he has done, drive the stake in the ground, and this is the day that the Lord has made to become made anew. And I'm gonna ask, if you do that today, you gotta talk with someone. You've gotta tell someone in this room of that decision. You have to, hear me? You have to today. Because listen, this is not the kind of thing to wimp out on. This is the kind of thing to cheer out on. And we want to cheer with you in that if that's the case. Oh my, how the Lord would love it if grabbing the bread and grabbing the cup, and that began a journey for you in understanding what was going on like you've never understood before. For those who know Christ as our Savior, oh, I would pray that this would be a time right now where we would just whoop it up. Okay, there are times for somberness. 
There are times for like, it's like, let's just be quiet and let's just be calm and let's just be very subdued. But then there's times in our hearts where we need to be like jumping through the crazy roof. Because look what the Lord has done. This is no religious activity. This is a spiritual reality of what God has done. 